carry on at chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, thank you, Zoe, for reading that passage so clearly. And can I add my welcome to Andy's this morning? It's great to see so many of you and many uh, friends I've met before. I think this is just my third time here. It's nice to see familiar faces. One day, I do hope to stay a bit longer. Please forgive me as I need to dash off after this to go and um, preach at uh, Wild Street later. Uh, my name is Sam. I'm married to Jen. I have four boys. And I think that qualifies me to uh, read my dad joke. Uh, which is, uh, what do you call a lazy kangaroo? A pouch potato. There we go. Um, 
it is, uh, it's always difficult, isn't it, when, when you're a dad and tell jokes, and then when you're a dad and you're a preacher and tell jokes. But thank you uh, very much uh, for indulging me. Uh, can I, uh, again, say uh, how uh, delighted we are to see you, especially if you are a guest among us, and uh, this is perhaps your first time in church for a while. I'm really thrilled that you're here, because here in this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, we have before us a picture of what the authentic Christian life looks like. Uh, perhaps you're not a Christian, uh, you've been wondering for a while, what does a Christian, what does a Christian look like? What does a Christian really believe? And why? And why might I need to think about Jesus and what he says, and perhaps even following Jesus for myself? Those are the questions that you've asked or have ever asked. I'm delighted that you're here. As a of things here in this passage, so we're going to need God's help, and I'll do my best to try and explain them, but let's ask for his help as we uh, follow and hear. Join with me as I pray. Father, these are wonderful truths here in your word. Please, by your spirit, give us ears that might hear and minds that might understand and hearts that might love and believe and follow your truth, that we might know Jesus better in the power of his spirit and so live wholeheartedly for him. Amen. Now, do um, have your Bible open in front of you. Uh, if you've uh, closed it, uh, do open it up again to page 1222, 1222. What will the authentic Christian life look like? Well, the Christian life begins with Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. Christ suffered in the flesh. The Christian life begins with Christ. And the event central to the life of every Christian is that Christ suffered. God, the Son, became human just like us, with skin, a flesh, a mind, a body, just like us. And we heard last week, and he alluded to it earlier, the best news, the good news, which is that Christ suffered God, the righteous, as a swap for us, the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What great news that there is a way to heaven for those who by nature do not deserve to be there. We will treasure those words, Christ died for us. It means that the Christian life is one lived under grace. We are the freest people on earth, if you're a Christian. Do you believe that? And whilst we cannot add to our salvation, it's all done by Jesus on the cross. Whilst we can't add to our salvation, we are to follow our Saviour. And we heard the week before, if you were here, chapter 2 and verse 21, Christ also suffered, leaving you an example that we might follow in his steps. Christ suffered and died in our place to forgive our sin. Christ suffered and sets the example now for us of the authentic Christian life. So, chapter 4, verse 1, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And what is that way of thinking? Well, we don't need to guess. Verse 1, share Christ's mind. And if you have a look down at verse 7, Peter unpacks what that is like. It is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. That's what it means to have Christ's mind. Self-controlled, sober-minded. Being sober-minded is all about being fully alert 
and fully aware, isn't it? And what is it that we'll be aware of as we share Christ's thinking? Well, in between verse 1, share his mind, and verse 7, think sober-mindedly, it's like two bookends, and in between we have five references to the times. What is it that Christians should think about? What is it that should shape our thinking? It's, do you know the time? Do you ever play that game, what's the time, Mr. Wolf? Well, we're going to be asking, what's the time, Apostle Peter? Okay, what's the time, Apostle Peter? Well, he's about to tell us. Verse 1, it's time to cease from sin. Verse 2, it's time to live not for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 3, it, the time is past for living uh, in the way that the nations did, but now is not that time. Verse 5, the time is close to judgment, for Jesus is ready to judge. And verse 7, the time is nearly over, the end of all things is at hand. So the Christian will arm themselves with sober thinking about the time that we're in. And the command to arm yourselves is really the command of the soldier. Now in Peter's day, living in military occupy the Roman Empire, they would have seen the soldiers march up and down, going on patrol, going off to battle, uh, taking up their, their packs, their armour, the sword, the belt, uh, the tunic, and over the top of all that, they would have carried the hoplon or the shield. The shield being the put on, so that they would be able to be battle ready at a moment's notice. And that's the picture that Peter wants to give to us, the Christian. Are you battle ready? Are you arming yourself? Do you have your shield on, ready to live the Christian life every second of the day? Are you arming yourselves? with Christ's thinking about the times that we're in. Of course, why does Peter need to tell us this? But it's that I know for myself, and I suspect you as well, that we don't always think like this by nature, do we? Uh, there is what we might call cognitive dissonance. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a difference, there's a disjunct between what we think and see and feel and what we're told to be true. Uh, it doesn't very much feel like the judgment is that far away, does it? As you ate your wheat bix this morning, you poured yourself a second cup of coffee. Did you think about that? No, I didn't. Uh, but that's what we're told. There's cognitive dis uh, dissonance between what we think and see and feel and what we're told. Uh, it doesn't very much feel like tomorrow is going to be very much different from today, does it? Again, you'll have your wheat bix and your second cup of coffee. At this cognitive dissonance, Peter says, don't think like that. Be sober-minded. Share Christ's mind. Today might be the last day of human history. That is hard to believe, isn't it? Which is why he tells us to share Christ's thinking. I wonder how battle-ready we are. How much does the end feature in our thinking? Well, if you have forgotten, you're a bit weary, you've dropped your shield, dropped your guard, then join me in arming yourself with Christ's way of thinking. And we'll spot the person who does that, who thinks soberly, who thinks correctly, who thinks about the time that we're in. And there'll be three marks. And here's the first. It's time for suffering 
not sinning, verses 1 to 3. And if you've got an outline on your, uh, on your way in, we're following through well, uh, the first point. It's time for suffering, not sinning. Verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, when Peter talks about suffering here in this chapter, he's not just talking about any suffering. Of course, all suffering is bad. Suffering is suffering. And many of you will be carrying all sorts of things. God knows. God cares. But the particular kind of suffering that Peter's talking about here is the suffering for being a Christian. It's the suffering that only the Christian experiences because it's the suffering that comes when they live out the costly life following Jesus in a hostile world. And in the Christian life, there'll be times that we need to make a choice. We'll be faced with suffering for being a Christian, and we'll have to make a choice. Which way do you go? Uh, Do I uh, live wholeheartedly, obediently, and yet suffer for Jesus? Or do I live like Jesus means nothing to me, and I compromise, I keep my head down, and I blend in? And in those moments, the the person armed with Christ's way of thinking will think soberly about the times that we're in and will choose obedience even in suffering. They will choose that way even to suffer rather than sin. It's like they've left sin behind, and that's what it means. The person who has suffered has ceased from sin, not that they will never do it again, but they're done with it. Sin means nothing to me. I'm going to follow Jesus, even if it means walking over hot coals and broken glass to do it. Because if we think about it, with sober minds, making making sense of the times, it doesn't make sense to sin, does it? I mean, we do. But if we think about it, sin is the most nonsensical thing to do, isn't it? As in, if you knew that Jesus was going to return at 4 p.m. this afternoon, would you start engaging in sin at 3.55? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we'd be, we'd be I don't know what we'd be doing. We'd be on the phone to Andy or something like that. You know, Andy, just you know, tell me about Jesus. We, the point is that we would be living a Christian life. If you knew rightly about the end, sin makes no sense. And if we're, if we're thinking about the end, then we can put up with a bit of suffering, can't we? Knowing that our saviour is coming and we will see him. The person armed with Christ's way of thinking will choose suffering over sin 100% of the time. Well, here's the second mark of the Christ-minded person. They will know that it's time for judgment, not joining in, verses 4 to 6. I'll read verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Can we join in with the world? Well, of course we can. On their touch footy team. I like a bit of that. Join the play group. Join your friends at the barbecue. Of course we can. But we cannot join in with their sin. Peter calls it debauchery. 
But the Gentiles, the unbelieving world, is surprised by this. Because, of course, the unbelieving world does not think soberly about the time. How can they? They don't have Christ's mind. See, for them, why wouldn't you sin? Uh, for them, in fact, if there is no judgment, then there is no concept of sin. There is no uh, definitive right and wrong. Why wouldn't you join in for an easy, comfortable, happy life now? There is no end. If there's no judgment. And I thought it was interesting as I was reading this through that what Peter singles out as what characterized the first century world, the first century unbelieving world, what characterizes them, two things, an interest in sex and alcohol. Uh, the motto for them is live and let live. Love and let love. Be who you want to be and do what you want to do. That's the motto, isn't it? Is a person not thinking about the end? And I know that uh, this, this kind of uh, picture, sex, interest in alcohol, I know that, as well as you do, that that's not every unbeliever. But I think it's fair to say that sex and alcohol, certainly where I'm from in Britain, pretty well characterises British culture. You know, the great British culture that we've managed to export all around the world? So far that it's come to Sydney. You can thank us later for that. But you see, if there's no judgment, then why not join in with, with debauchery? Bit of time with the lads on a Friday night. Uh, why not deny Jesus when it suits? Yet we will all have to give an account, won't we? That's what Peter says, for Jesus has been raised. Uh, look at the last verse of chapter 3. The last verse, Christ has been raised, and through his resurrection, he has gone into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God. What is that seat that he sits on? It's the judgment seat. He's the only man who has been raised and is qualified to judge. And all people everywhere, from every country, will have to answer on that day, how have they responded to Jesus? So all of us here, if you're sitting on one of these seats, how will we respond? What should we do? Well, armed with Christ's way of thinking, we should know that now is the time for judgment, not joining in with sin. Now, the first two marks of this Christ-minded person have been negative. Verses 1 to 6 are about what not to do, and verses 7 to 11 are positive, what to do. What should the Christ-minded person do? And it's our third point. The Christ-minded person would know that it's the time for serving, not selfishness. Verse 7. The end of all things... Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Knowing the time changes everything, doesn't it? Uh, when it's time to get the kids out of the house and school starts at 9 o'clock and you're still in the house at 8.58, knowing the time means that you just press the pedal as far as the speed limit will let you. Knowing the time changes everything, doesn't it? And knowing the time will transform the believer and make them stand out. Did you notice how the qualities of verse 7 are the opposite of verse 3? Self-controlled is the opposite to selfish sensuality and passions. Sober-minded, opposite to drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties. Prayerfulness, that is right relationship with God, opposite to lawless idolatry. 
the Christ-minded person will live differently. Eleanor told us about that in the children's book. Well, and this distinctive life is going to be seen in three areas. Loving others, verse 8. Showing hospitality without grumbling, verse 9. And serving, verse 10. Now, I wonder if you're thinking, what is this section doing here? It seems a bit random. Is this just a, a random list of commands that Peter felt like he needed to say something? No, I don't think this is random. This is in the context of a suffering people suffering for living for Christ. And there are two options here. I wonder what you think. Is this option one? Option one is that this is about how to love your church and love other Christians who are suffering for doing good. Uh, could it be that as Christians suffer, we need to love each other? Uh, we need to show hospitality with our church, our family of believers. Well, of course, that will be vital. I think we can agree with that, can't we? And if you know someone in your growth group who is suffering for living for Jesus, we will surround them with love and we will say, keep on going with Christ's mind. I do think it's about loving your church, but I think that we cannot restrict this to just loving our church, can we? I wonder if this actually is about the wider application of loving everyone. It certainly includes the church. But Peter's been referring to the world in verses 1 to 6, and I don't see any reason why he now changes view and starts talking about someone else. I think he is talking about the world all the way through. There's no reason why he changes his focus. And perhaps he has Jesus' words in his mind. You might recall them from Luke chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. I'll read them out. Jesus said, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? What benefit is it? Don't even sinners do that? And even sinners serve sinners. But Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who abuse you. That's a hard teaching, isn't it? I think that's very hard teaching. But as Peter said earlier, we're to live as servants of God. He has ransomed us. He has freed us from living in this world. We don't need to grab all that we can out of this life because through grace, the Lord Jesus has prepared for us a kingdom that is undefiled, unshaken, imperishable. We don't need to live like it's just me and I've got to fight for myself now. No, Christ's grace has freed us to love and serve the person who abuses you. And I'm not pretending that that's hard. Sorry, I'm not pretending that that's easy. But I do think that what we're promised here is that the Christ-minded person will be given strength by God to do this. And so when unbelievers cause you to suffer, perhaps it's that snide comment at work, perhaps it's physical, emotional abuse even, insult for sure, loving them will both will do two things. Loving them will cover your bitterness towards them. That's the first reason why we should love them. We feel bitter. No, choosing to love with Christ's mind will cover our bitterness towards them. And that's the first thing we should always do, isn't it? When we're in a conflict situation. What is it that I need to deal with about my sin? Loving others deals with my bitterness towards others. 
so I can love them truly. And secondly, loving others forgives their sin against me. It covers over their sin. It allows us to be friends. Uh, Showing hospitality, literally loving the other person who is not like you. Showing hospitality without grumbling, well, why would you grumble? But because they've abused you. And yet we show them hospitality, we treat them as friends. Peter says the Christ-minded person will do that. Serving others with the strength God supplies. And I think by now we need, we realise that we need God's strength to do this. God's strength comes in giving us the mind of Christ. If you're finding it hard, realise the time. It comes through having the mind of Christ and we can do this. See, friends, Peter hasn't forgotten that he's speaking to a bunch of Christians who are aliens and strangers in the world. These are not random commands. These are how where to love our church, but more than that, they're how we're to love the world around us. As we remember, this is what Christ did for us. Christ died for who? The good Christians in church? No, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were best friends with him? No, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so to have Christ's mind is to live his way in the suffering, but to arm ourselves. So let me finish up point one. Do we arm ourselves in this way? Have you dropped your shield recently? Forgotten the times that we're in? I wonder if our activities and our attitudes this week make sense and will make sense given the times that we're in. What do you think? Do you think it's consistent with the times if you knew Jesus was coming back soon? Well, what you do and what you think makes sense this week. Well, you'll be pleased to know we're well over halfway and we're on to our second point. And given what Peter has said so far, when the Christian lives with the Christian mindset, he or she will, will encounter some measure of abuse, teasing, and suffering. And we were shocked last week, at least I was shocked, as we looked at chapter 3 and verse 17, and Peter has the audacity to say, it is better to suffer for doing good than deny Jesus and sin. And I wonder if you were thinking, is that right? Is that right? Is Peter making a bit of an apostolic blunder here? Is it really better to suffer, suffer for being a Christian? Is it worth it? Well, this is our second point, sharing Christ's suffering. Let me read from verse 12. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Again, Peter writes to correct our cognitive dissonance. What is it that we need to have corrected now? Well, it is strange, isn't it, that the Christian should suffer for doing good. And I think we can forgive ourselves a little bit, if I'm honest, because we're conditioned from a young age, aren't we, to think that you only suffer for doing the wrong thing. Uh, We're often told as children, uh, don't touch the cooker, it will burn you. Uh, Don't play in the traffic, Uh, the cars will hurt you. These are good commands. These are things that I've told my children. But it means that we're conditioned, aren't we, to think that obedience, obeying mummy and daddy, brings safety. And disobeying those commands, touching the cooker, will bring suffering. And suffering is always bad. 
Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> I think if you love your children, I hope that's what you're saying. Uh, but that's why it's hard for us to understand why we might suffer for being good, suffer for doing good. And Peter's got two points to make, and that's the first. Don't be surprised that Christians will suffer for doing good. And here's the second, and I think this is perhaps even more surprising, that it is actually good to live the wholehearted Christian life and suffer for it. I'll say it again, so it is a surprise. Peter is actually going to argue that it is better to live the wholehearted Christian life and suffer for it. He's going to have some work to do to convince us of that, isn't he? Well, let's have a look at our first points. They're easy to remember. A, B, C. Here's the first. Sharing Christ's suffering brings A, assurance. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, but, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. What is the fiery trial, we might be asking? Well, uh, we need to turn back to the beginning of the letter, 1 Peter, chapter 1. Please uh, turn back with me so you know that what I'm saying is true. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 6, Peter's talked about the fiery trial before, hasn't he? What is it? Chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this saying? It is saying that fire can be good. Yes, fire burns, but it also refines. And the picture here is of the goldsmith. Uh, the goldsmith, he's at his forge, his furnace, and he's holding out the crucible, and in there is some gold ore, I suppose. I did geology, don't really ask me what that looks like. But I suppose you go down to um, Victoria somewhere, and, and you're panning for gold, and, and you find a nugget, and it's got a bit of, bit of rock and a bit of dust and a bit of grit in it, and so you put it in the crucible, and you hold it over the furnace, and it gets hotter and hotter, and the hotter and hotter it gets, the more the dross burns off, and the hotter and hotter the fire, the purer and purer the gold, until what you're left with is 100% pure gold. And the buyer comes along, and he sees that gold, and he buys that gold, but it's been refined through fire. It, what he buys is 100% pure gold. And Peter's point is that the believer's fiery trial is forging in them 100% genuine, pure faith. A pure faith more precious than gold. And that pure faith will result in praise and glory. And Peter's point is that if you suffered as a Christian and you're still Christian, you have been refined. You've been purified. And your faith is shown to be not just dross that has burnt up, but your faith is real, genuine, saving faith. A lot of people struggle with assurance, don't they? I had a friend in England who fled Iran because he became a Christian. He hasn't seen his wife or his two daughters for 12 years. That man does not lack assurance 
in his salvation. He knows that every day he could just get on a plane to go back and see them, and yet his girls would be left without a father. This man is suffering because he refuses to renounce his faith. He'll go back and he'll preach Christ again. That's why he had to fled, uh, flee the secret police in the first place. The person who suffers, who's been refined through the fire, need not lack assurance. They have 100% saving faith. And what faith does, we're talking about the doctrine of union with Christ here, is faith unites me to Jesus in his suffering. And if I'm united, if I share Christ's sufferings, then wherever Christ is, we go. If Christ is in glory, then the person who has suffered with Christ, like Christ, will share in his glory. That's the confidence. Is it better to suffer for, being good, for doing good? Yes. We have assurance. Here's the second uh, blessing. Uh, suffering, sharing Christ's suffering, B, brings blessing, verse 14. Uh, we're back in chapter 4, if you're still in chapter 1. Back in chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are the most unlucky person in the world. If you are uh, insulted for the name of Christ, you are pitied. Uh, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're weak, you're a loser, you're a coward, you're a nobody. No, no sorry. No, Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? How about this for a promise? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, those who have read their Bible almost ever will know that who did the Spirit descend on at his baptism? The Lord Jesus. Peter is saying that you have the same Spirit descending on you as rested on who? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the only living God. What a promise that is. The Spirit rested on Jesus at his baptism, marking him out as King of the Kingdom. The Spirit empowered Jesus then to resist Satan in the wilderness, empowering him for kingdom life. And in Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, what does the Spirit do for the believer? Uh, you can turn there if you want to. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that we're sanctified by the Spirit. Sanctified simply means set apart. You're set apart no longer to be found as one of who, who just lives in the world, but no, you're set apart to belong to the kingdom. What the kingdom that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, the kingdom of heaven. And also, like Jesus, chapter 1, verse 5, by the power of God, that is the Spirit, the Christian is guarded. You are guarded by God's power, guarded through faith for salvation. So when you are insulted, the Spirit of God rests on you, rests in you marking you out as belonging to God, marking you out as an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven, marking you out and empowering you to live the Christian life. That's why Peter says, chapter 4, verse 14, if you are insulted, you are blessed. I wonder if you've been insulted. I should ask. I wonder if you've been so blessed. If you have been insulted, for following Jesus, the Spirit of God rested upon you. You share 
twice as suffering, which means you will share his glory. And here's the, the point in a nutshell. If you're insulted for Christ, says, blessing of salvation is secure. And if that's right, you can understand why verse 15 follows next. Because if Peter says, it's better to suffer for Christ, then he might imagine some people in his congregation think, brilliant, I'm going to annoy my entire neighbourhood, I'm going to kick my footy ball through their windows, I'm going to scratch their car, dent their windows, I'm just going to be the biggest nuisance so that I get to suffer, so that I get blessing. No, that just makes you an annoying neighbour. Nobody likes an annoying neighbour. Peter says, don't suffer for just being an idiot and a meddler and annoying. That's called being annoying. No, Peter says, suffer for being a Christian. And you don't need to go looking for it, may I say. Just live the godly Christian life. Obey God at every juncture and suffering will come to you. Have no fear of that. If you've been so blessed, the spirit of God rests on you. And here's our third point. To share Christ's sufferings brings confidence. Verse 16 to 18. If a Christian, Peter says, let him not be ashamed. And it is shameful to suffering, isn't it? Embarrassing. But Peter here isn't saying, there, there, don't worry, he's pulling out the tissues, he's blowing your nose. He's not saying, oh, that, that, don't be ashamed. No. This is an apostolic declaration. If anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed. Let this Christian, this suffering Christian, let him not be brought to shame. He has nothing to be ashamed about, but every reason for confidence. For why? Verse 17, Peter has the judgment in mind, and the person who suffers for Christ will not be ashamed, but rather confident on that day. Why? For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. This, maybe, is what Zoe refers to as one of those difficult passages. How is it that judgment comes to the Christian? Let's go on. For the Christian will be judged. In fact, it's closer than a future judgment. Did you notice that? Not Christians will be judged, future, but now is the time for judgment to begin. What does this mean? Well, it's bound up with the fiery trial that Christians are enduring. Everyone, says Peter, will face fire. Peter loves his readers so much that he tells them the truth straight, and he tells them about the judgment of God. In his second letter, he writes, he writes this, that the heaven and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. I don't know that we can read that without having a lump in our throat. Because Peter is saying that all of us, and that includes myself, all of us who are ungodly by nature must find protection and refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. We need to ask, are you trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection today? For in him and only in him is there protection from this final judgment on sin and sinners. All will face fire, says Peter. Yet for the Christian, Peter is saying that the fiery trial is 
their judgment. Uh, their fiery trial in the suffering now as a Christian is their fire. Uh, this trial is not easy. This trial is not pleasant. It may not be quick. But rather than destroy, it refines. All will face fire, says Peter, but here's Peter's logic. Those who face one fire will not face another. If we had more time, I'd talk about the illustration of the bushfire, which you all understand, and backburning. It clears the ground. It means that the fire will not burn the same area twice. And that's Peter's logic. Those who are suffering, facing the fire of suffering now, are facing the beginning of judgment. I want to stress again, it's not the fire that destroys. This is the fire that refines. But it's why the Christian will not face fire twice, why they can have every confidence on the day of judgment. Because being bound with Jesus, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Our sin has been paid for. Bound with Jesus, we will not face judgment ourselves. Praise God. But as Peter goes on, he explains that well, if this suffering that they're enduring is hard, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Again, if there was anything that sobered the mind, it is thinking about the fire of judgment. And can I say directly to you, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is why we, might, we must become a follower of Jesus and put our trust in him. There will be a day, it may be today, it may not be today, it may be in 10 years, 100 years time, but there will all be a day where we have to face Jesus. There will be a day of fire. It's no accident that you're here this morning. This might be hard to hear, I, I completely understand. This is hard to say. But, but Peter, no doubt with tears in his eyes, he pleads with you, put your trust in Christ. It's the only safe place to be. And it's why the Christian who has done that can have complete confidence. Fire doesn't strike twice. We have every confidence as we face the trial now, knowing that we'll be safe on the day of judgment at the end. But as we begin to wrap up, we've been asking the question, is the Christian life really worth living? That is, is it really worth suffering now for Jesus and all that that involves, living the godly Christian life. And we've seen three times yes. Sharing in Christ's suffering brings A, B, C. Brings assurance, a refined faith in Jesus, a hope of glory. Brings blessing, the spirit of glory, guaranteeing, guaranteeing our inheritance. And brings confidence, safety and security. No fear of judgment. So the conclusion, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator by continuing to do good. And I wonder if we believe this. What will be the mark that we believe this? Well, let me ask, do we understand the times? Are you going to bear up your shield and put on your armor and arm yourself with Christ's way of thinking this week? Knowing the times, the end is near. And will your life make sense of the judgment. That is, are you going to continue to do good? Trusting your creator God who knows you and loves you and has a great plan for your life and eternal life. 
this way, then let's remember his grace and trust in him as we endure suffering because we love Christ and we have assurance, blessing and confidence to stand before him for all eternity. Please join me as I lead us in prayer. Our Father God, these are hard things to hear for people who we know by nature we have not thought about the end as much as we should have. We have become so absorbed in the now and please forgive us for where we might have joined in, joined in sin, uh, we've lived selfish lives. Please renew us by your grace and give us minds of Christ that know him and are looking forward to that day where we'll be assured blessed and have no need of further confidence because we'll stand before you on the throne. Father, thank you for this word. Help us to trust in Christ this week and for the rest of our lives. Amen.